Jesus bore our shame. And the, the exhortation here then is, so let's go outside the camp and join him. Let's bear the disgrace he bore. Remind you again that this is our, you know, kind of a working outline. It's a kind of simplified working outline. It talks to us about who, who Jesus is, the work that he accomplished, and then how should we respond uh, to both of those things. Uh, and we're right here in um, the second of four real sections in the final chapter, uh, living outside the camp. What's the theological basis here? I just want to remind you again, uh, it's the unchanging nature of Jesus Christ. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And as a consequence, the way to approach a life lived in Jesus Christ, well, that never changes either. That's why we have all these awesome examples from the Bible that we can use over and over and over again. Even though we're 2,000 years removed from their culture and the whole world away from where they lived, we can live our lives based on the same principles and truths that they live their lives based upon because Jesus Christ never changes the foundation, the cornerstone of our lives. So let's look at the text. Um, Yeah, let's look at the text. If you have your Bible uh, handy, we're looking in Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to start in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high place, uh, most holy place, as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the camp, outside the city gate, to make the people holy through his own blood. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this exhortation that we have here. Thank you for the book of Hebrews and all the truth that we have learned Uh, about the identity and the power and the perfection and the superiority of Jesus Christ and the superiority of the work which he accomplished uh, through the cross and through the resurrection. Father, I thank you for the faith that you have given us and the ways that you have called us to live in light of your truth. God, I ask that you would help us to apprehend uh, your your word, apprehend the gospel even more clearly today, and that we... Uh, through what we uh, read today and what we learn and what we think about, uh, that we would grow in our, um, in, our, in our right attitude towards you, an attitude of submission and love and obedience, and that our lives would reflect that, that our lives would reflect the glory of Christ, um, even though we understand that in reflecting the glory of Christ, we bring on the hatred from the world. Help us to bring honor and glory to you, whatever the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, in the first verse here, in in verse 10, he says, we have an altar uh, from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, of course, he's not talking about a physical food offering, all right? But he's making the the, the comparison, right? Because the priests, they 
share in the altar. And, and Paul talks about it in, that in 1 Corinthians 9. It's not really deal, he's not really dealing with the topic we are, but he, he talks about that in 1 Corinthians 9. You can see the same thing in Leviticus when you look back. Um, I believe in Leviticus chapter 6, it talks about the, sin, the, part, the portion of the offerings that are appropriate for the priests to eat. Uh, and then, of course, we know that the priests would have a regular share in fellowship offerings and thanksgiving offerings um, that the people would offer, right? So he's, he's just making a comparison here. Um, when we talk about an altar, uh, and you'll hear songs about an altar, right? I think there's a song called uh, Come to the Altar, something of that nature. Um, that song always reminds me of the altar call at the end of a service when I was a kid, you know, um, you know, if anybody's, you know, if anybody has been moved by the message today and you want to dedicate your life to Jesus or, or if you want to give your life to God for the first time or rededicate your life, um, then every head bowed and every eye closed, you know, raise your hand, walk the altar, you know. Um, and the, the idea of walk the altar was coming up at the stage and like kneeling down at the stage. And, and, and that's not what he's talking about here, right? I mean, Jay says it regularly, and I, and I really appreciate this, um, you know, we, we don't, you don't need to walk an aisle to give your life to Christ. Um, and there's a sense, I don't know if he says this, but there's a sense in which we are always rededicating our lives to Christ. Every single time we face a temptation to sin, we need to dedicate our life to Christ in that moment rather than giving in to the, the temptations of the world around us. Um, but we don't have an altar in the sense that we come up and eat food. And even when we take the Lord's Supper... We don't even refer to this as an altar, right? This is a table and we put the elements on the table. This is not an altar, right? And what's what's interesting to me is that when we look, uh, other than this mention here, when we look in his description of the Old Testament um, temple and tabernacle in Hebrews, he doesn't talk about an altar. He talks about putting the blood on the altar. He He talks about that, but he doesn't talk about an altar in heaven that we have. There is a sacrifice that's been offered once. There's not an altar in heaven that somebody goes to kneel at. There's not an altar where there's a continual sacrifice being made. Jesus Christ offered himself once for all sin, for all those who would, who, who would, who would be purified by his sacrifice. It was a one-time offering. We don't, we don't worship like the Catholic Church worships. We don't teach like they, like they teach in regard to the the Lord's Supper. This is not a continual sacrifice being made over and over again, not bloodless or otherwise. It's, it's It's a sacrifice that's been made once. And the benefits of that sacrifice endure into eternity for all who will come in faith. So we don't have an altar, really. And when we come and we take this, again, I don't think he's talking specifically about the Lord's Supper. I think he's using the symbolism of the Old Testament offering and how the priests would share in the sacrifices for sustenance in a physical way. And he's making a comparison that like in, in, in um, John chapter 6, when Jesus explains how he's the bread of heaven, how, how we share in the spiritual benefit as priests under the high priest Jesus, priests in the service of God, we take our spiritual nourishment from this once-for-all sacrifice. That's what he's talking about here. Okay, so um, if there's still any confusion, um, I'd be happy to to talk with you more about that. But we have a once-for-all sacrifice, and we have spiritual food. 
which is in the form of grace that we get through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, um, he takes our imagery back to um, the temple, back to the tabernacle, and I would argue that he's talking about specifically the Day of Atonement, because um, there's not much of a mention of the regular sin sacrifices being carried outside the camp. Um, but there is a heavy emphasis in Leviticus chapter 16 on the uh, sacrifice for sins that the priest would make on the Day of Atonement uh, and how that, uh, the body and the, the skin and everything, everything other than the blood, was taken outside the camp and burned in a place outside the camp. And how the man who carried it and then the man who burned it, anybody who dealt with that um, sacrifice that was carried outside the camp, they were considered unclean until evening. And so that's what he's, he's bringing to mind here. And he uses, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it or not, or if you remember it from our study in Hebrews, a chiastic structure where he goes, he talks about, it would be organized like in an A, B, B, A, or a 1, 2, 2, 1. The idea is, is that the middle things correspond to each other and the outside things correspond. It can be really complicated in, in Deuteronomy. You have like sometimes eight or nine points that go in one particular order and then they go in descending order after that or opposite order after that. And it's telling you that the thing in the center is the most important, right? And so we see that same thing here in this structure. The, at the central point is being made uh, is, is that he's getting at is the, the, the uncleanness or the shame or the disgrace. Uh, when I say uncleanness, I'm talking about ceremonial uncleanness being associated with having contact with the sacrifice. So what he's saying is in, this, in essence this, just like the sin sacrifice was burned up outside, Jesus was crucified outside the camp. He was treated as unholy. He was treated as unclean. He was treated as shameful. He was treated as disgraceful. And he was, in a sense, banished from the camp. When, it, when, it, when a person who had leprosy or some other, you know, might not have been leprosy, another type of skin disease that was con, uh, considered, um, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but continual, right? It was continuing. It wasn't something that just ran its course and was done. They were put outside the camp. The idea is that there can't be uncleanness in the camp of God, in the people of Israel. But here what he's saying is that when you leave the camp now, when you go outside of the camp now, to be with the one who offered himself, you are leaving the camp of his people, but you are join uh, I'm sorry, but of the people of Israel, but you're joining the camp of, of his eternal kingdom. So to identify with Christ, you must leave the camp of Israel. He's writing to a group of people who are living in a time when the temple is still up. People are still offering sacrifices. And these guys are of Jewish heritage. And he's saying, you need to get off the fence. And you need to go outside the camp. You need to, in a sense, separate yourself from the nation of Israel and identify yourself with the shepherd of Israel and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You need to be willing to go and bear the shame and bear the disgrace of one who is following, a, in, in, in the Jewish perspective, a false Messiah. You have to let go of those old attachments 
And you have to embrace the disgrace of following the one who was shamed for our benefit. You have to leave the camp. And we see that just like the blood was poured out in the most holy place, and he talked about this earlier in the book of Hebrews, Jesus' blood entered the most holy place, and Jesus' blood makes us holy. So you have kind of a choice. What he said to the, the, the Jewish believers, the Jewish audience, he said, you can remain in the Old Testament system. You can retain the good graces of your friends and your family who have stayed true to Judaism and have rejected the Messiah. Or you can leave the camp and go be with the people of the Redeemer. You can leave the camp of Israel and go join the people of the, that are redeemed, that are made holy. But you have to make a choice. You have to accept the shame and the disgrace that he bore. Um, and you can just see this all over the Gospels. right? You can see how, how the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and all the elite, how typically they always rejected Jesus. A very few that we see in the Gospels accept the rightful Messiah and follow him. The majority don't. And in, in the book of John, uh, John makes it very clear that, that during the time of Jesus' ministry, when people publicly identified with Jesus, they were put out of the synagogue. And so that idea is very, very clear right here. He says, you need to leave the camp. There's a clash of cultures here. And you're going to have to accept the hatred and the ire and the disrespect of the one in order to be in the kingdom of God. Let's go outside the camp. Let's leave the comfort. Let's leave the respect of the community, not in the sense of doing right, but in the sense of following Christ. It's not that the, the, the Jewish people had any less sense of morality. They were very good at moralism. They just didn't understand, they didn't understand the, the, who the Messiah was. They didn't understand what he came to accomplish, and so they rejected Jesus. But he says, let's go. Let's, let's embrace the disgrace. Because we have an enduring city. Uh, we do not have an enduring city. We are looking for the city that is to come. Now, this is kind of, a, kind of an interesting verse here. Um, he's talked about it earlier. Uh, he talked about Moses looking for an eternal city, and he talked about the Old Testament people looking for an eternal home. Uh, which is clear that we're talking about a heavenly home, an enduring kingdom, the eternal messianic kingdom. What's interesting about this is that even though he says we don't have an enduring city, um, we know historically that the city of Jerusalem did not endure. I don't know exactly how, how much longer after this um, letter was written uh, that, the, that, uh, that the fall of Jerusalem happened, that Rome just devastated Jerusalem and burned it to the ground, and, and as Jesus predicted, left no stone on top of another. But it's remarkable that those people who were of the Jewish people, and whether they heard about Christ and believed, or whether they heard about Christ and just made academic assent, um, they were separated. And those who fell away, um, who had either fallen away during the time of the author uh, of Hebrews' writing, or, or after, um, those who fell away chose a, a city on earth and chose the, 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 
the respect and the admiration and the love from their own people. But that city was destroyed. He says, we're looking for the city that is to come. We're looking for the new Jerusalem, the one which is above. So what are we supposed to do with this, right? Um, Well, I'm going to make it very simple. Uh, I think the author of Hebrews makes it simple, and I'm not going to cloud it up with a lot of other stuff. We ought to embrace shame and disgrace from the world by living our lives publicly for Jesus. That means embracing the moral commands of Scripture, which are in direct conflict with the world around us. That means calling sin, sin, whatever venue you're in. It means always living according to the word for the glory of God. Even though, and regardless of the kind of culture you're living in, not trying to adapt ourselves to the culture around us. And if you look online, you'll find all sorts of churches that have particular flags hanging because they are trying to get close to a culture that is turned away from the Messiah. And they, like the world, have created a culture by their rebellion, by their sinful rebellion and hatred of God, they've created a culture in which you and I are told to be ashamed of ourselves. Where evil is taught as good and good is held up as evil. Make no mistake, we are in just as much of a culture war as these first century believers. It's not exactly the same culture war. Because the same moralism that the Hebrews, that the Jewish people were holding up, is the same moral culture as the, as the church would have taught. They wouldn't have cha- taught a hugely different morality. It's just that the church was given uh, the full understanding of the mystery of godliness through Jesus Christ. So whereas the, 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 the Jewish people could show the correct things to do, they had by no means the power to do it. The morality was not all that different. But today, the morality is hugely different. Worlds apart. But we need to live our lives publicly and I don't want to just say publicly, like, doing the right thing. I don't believe in, in, the, in evangelism by osmosis. You know? As cool as the little graphic is, you know, when you see the, anybody see the chosen graphic where they have, like, the fish going in the one direction and they bump against each other and turn around and go the other way? You know, that, would, that could only be true if people are preaching the gospel. It doesn't happen by bumping into somebody. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen just by living morally. And you guys know this, right? Living here in Hamtramck, you meet people who have this system of outward morality all the time. And so when you act moral, or when you say something that is in keeping with their morality, they love it. But tell them about the reason for your ability to do the moral thing. 
Tell them that Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, and you'll bump up against their culture too. We have to live our lives publicly for Christ, and we have to be vocal about why we're doing it. For one, there's not going to be any kind of change if we don't preach the gospel. For two, if we don't do that, we are showing, we are saying that we're ashamed of Christ. And to be ashamed of Christ is to be in the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And although knowing God through Jesus Christ and living in a way that is in accordance with the gospel, that will draw the hatred of the world. But isn't Christ worth it? We have to live our lives publicly for Christ, vocally and morally. When we organize our lives around obedience to God, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will inevitably encounter hatred from the world. Um, But be encouraged by the truth of Scripture, because the world is treating us as it treated Christ. Andrew quoted somebody a few years ago before they went to Morocco. I guess more than a few years ago before they went to Morocco. And he talked about this same topic right here. And he quoted somebody else. I don't know who it was. But they said that, you know, how can we live our lives expecting to be, to be celebrated and enjoyed and loved by the world and held up by the world when the world killed our Savior, the one that we follow, our Lord, So, truth for comfort. The first four things that I'm going to give you are from this passage. And this is not new, this is just reminding you. Only the church, only the redeemed, receive the special grace of God and salvation. No one else. You understand this is a precious gift, and it's a very particularly given gift. It is only given to the church. The gift of salvation is only given to the church, only to those who have followed Christ. The blood of Jesus makes us holy. That sacrifice that other people reject, for whatever reason they come up with, whether it's a worldly one, you know, a secular, non-religious worldly one, or a Muslim one, or a Hindu one, or any other kind of religion, whatever reason that they reject the singular salvation that happens through only Jesus Christ, only according to the Scripture, whatever reason they reject that, none of them will be made holy. Only the church. This world treated Christ shamefully. And Jesus told His disciples in, in John chapter 15, if they hate you, they hated me first. Shame from the world for the sake of Christ is a sign that you belong to his kingdom. So he says we're looking forward to a city that will endure. We're looking forward to a city from heaven, a lasting kingdom. We're not trying to build an earthly kingdom here. We belong to the culture of heaven. Even if we live in a rebellious, hateful culture of hell. In Acts chapter 5, um, after the disciples were, the first time they were beaten, uh, we see that they were imprisoned before, but this is the first time that we see uh, flat out that they were beaten. 
Um, and they rejoiced. Verse 40, they called the apostles in, the they as the Sanhedrin, and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, this is after, of course, they told them earlier not to do it, and Peter says, hey, you be the judge. We've got to obey God instead of you. So they told him again, they beat him, and they told him again, and then the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. When the world hates you for the sake of Jesus Christ, you can rejoice, just like the disciples did. Because you have been counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. When somebody laughs at you in your face. When you tell the gospel. Take heart. You've been counted worthy to suffer disgrace. If something happens to you at your job. Whether you lose your job or you don't get the promotions or whatever the case may be. Because you are vocal about following Jesus. Don't be ashamed. That's shame from a world that's dying and and being consigned to hell. You can scorn that shame even as Jesus did. Looking forward to the joy that's before you. Philippians 1, he says, now he's talking about the opposition from the world. He says, this is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed, but that you'll be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Think about that. The suffering that you endure for the sake of the gospel is a gift. Something that God gave you, he granted to you. Rejoice in that. Peter says the same thing in in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate. This word participate goes back to the, 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 the word of fellowship, meaning fellowship or partaking in the very nature of. It's a word that we've gone over over and over and over in Hebrews. Anytime he says share in or participate in or partake of, Uh, usually in Hebrews, that's an indication of the word koinonia, which is about the fellowship, the restored right relationship of the church to God and the church to each other. Same word that that John uses in his opening uh, of 1 John, where he says, you know, we have fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ, and we're writing so that your joy will be complete because you'll have fellowship with us. So rejoice in as much as you participate, as much as you share, partake of, fellowship in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, that is, when he comes again. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. I'm not going to go there now, but you could go back later. Finally, what I wanted to rest on was this. The words of Jesus... In, John, in the end of John chapter 16, after he's told him about the way the world would hate him, after he's told him all that he's going to suffer, after even he's told him that they're going to, that Peter, that he's going to turn away and that they're all going to run away, he says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. 
In the world, you'll have trouble. Uh, some of the translations say, um, uh, oh, dang, now I can't remember the other word. Well, trouble or, um, or um, persecution. But take heart. I've overcome the world. The world's going to treat you if you follow Christ with shame, with disgrace. But don't forget, it's the same way they treated our Savior. So go to Him. Live your lives publicly for Him, regardless of the consequences. Because as you do, it's a sure sign to you that you belong to Him. Let's pray and let's thank God for the gift of the disgrace that He has given us in this world making us more like Jesus Christ, showing us to be like Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the comfort that we can derive from the truth of your word. That even though we have trouble in this world, even though we see persecutions, even though we experience sufferings, that you are calling us out as your children and you're showing us to be your children. Thank you so much that we can and do have peace through Jesus Christ. Because it is for the sake of Jesus Christ that the world would hate any of us. Because the world hated him first. And even though we were with the world, hating you and rebelling against you, you had mercy on us. And you saved us through the death of your son, Jesus Christ, and through his resurrection. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that we can take comfort even when we suffer. Father, help us to live our lives publicly and unashamedly for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to uh, sing, so if you would...